Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of the show. A good conversation ahead for you today. We're speaking on Monday, August 14th, 2023. And my guest is City Council Member Joe Borelli of Staten Island, the Republican Minority Leader of the City Council. He leads a group of six Republican members of the City Council in the 51-seat Council, but is also a leader of the larger eight-member Common Sense Caucus that includes a couple of conservative Democrats. Let me tell you right off the bat here, I'm actually recording this introduction after I recorded the interview with Councilmember Borelli, and I'll tell you right now, this that you're about to hear is a very interesting conversation with him on a few different subjects, but a whole bunch of things that I was planning to get into with him, we didn't get to. So this is going to be part one of two, and I'll book part two with him as soon as possible so we can continue the conversation. This is a really good conversation about a bunch of things related to government, how the mayor is doing, the city budget, and some other things, and housing development, and the role of the city council, and a lot of interesting things. Um, But there's a whole bunch I want to get to with Councilmember Borelli, including a preview of the fall general elections for city council all 51 seats of the city council are on the ballot this year not every race is competitive for the general election that's happening this fall but there's a number of seats where the republican sitting city council member is in a vulnerable position potentially then there's some other seats where democratic incumbents are in potentially vulnerable situation there's one wide open seat in brooklyn that republicans are hoping to win so there's half a dozen or so very interesting general elections for city council where I want to get the Republican minority leaders take on those races. There's one race happening in Brooklyn with two sitting city council members facing each other in the general election. Republican Ari Kagan, who was recently a Democrat, switched to the GOP and Democrat Justin Brannon. We'll get into that, but that's going to be part two. So stay tuned for that. But part one here is really interesting that we recorded just a little while before I'm now recording this introduction. So stay tuned for that. A little more about Councilmember Borelli. Uh, he represents the 51st City Council District, the South Shore of Staten Island. So uh, sort of a budding New Jersey if you're traveling in that direction. Uh, he's on the verge of securing a final two-year term in the City Council through this year's election. He is the longest serving city council member currently in the council. He came in in a special election in 2015, and he's won various elections since to stay in the council. And now he can secure his final two-year term, and then he'll be term limited out when the entire city government is on the ballot in 2025, including a mayoral election, borough presidents, and so forth. Staten Island borough president, if for some reason the incumbent Republican, Vito Fisella, doesn't run. That could be something that uh, Councilmember Borelli looks at, but he also perhaps will not be running in that election. We'll get into that maybe in part two. We didn't get to politics really in part one here. But um, Councilmember Borelli leads the six-member Republican caucus in the city council, as I mentioned, also a leader with two conservative Democrats in the eight-member common sense caucus that looks to influence city policy and budgeting. Uh, Most of that Common Sense Caucus, seven out of eight members, voted yes on the new $107 billion city budget. We'll chat about that a little bit here in this episode. Um, So it's an influential block in the city council, especially with a more moderate mayor in Eric Adams uh, and some of the ways that politics in the city have been trending. And we talk a little bit about that here in this conversation because 
there has been a degree of conservative and Republican momentum in New York City and state, which includes some of the results of recent city, state, and federal level elections. Republicans flipped not only a couple of city council seats in 2021 to grow their their caucus to the six members, but also in the 2022 elections, flipped a couple of state assembly seats in Brooklyn to Republican hands. Obviously, the congressional seats in the city suburbs that helped the GOP take control of the House nationally. Uh, And Lee Zeldin didn't win the governor's race, but really put a scare into Democrat Kathy Hochul and other Democrats and put Governor Hochul and Democrats in a bit of a worn position ahead of the 2024 elections and the 2026 governor's race that'll be here before we know it. Minority leader Borelli was a big booster of Zeldin's campaign. He helped work on an independent expenditure on its behalf. Uh, And I think he has high hopes for the city council elections coming up this fall, where Republicans are hoping to not only hold on to their current seats, and one or two of those races will be tough, but also potentially expand their conference through uh, what could be uh, one, two, three, four more wins if things break in their direction. So we will get into the politics and the upcoming city council general elections in part two with Councilmember Brelli as well as a variety of issues that we don't get into in this conversation. But what you're about to hear is a very interesting conversation about government not working and why government doesn't work in New York City uh, and a variety of, of related things, how Minority Leader Borelli assesses Mayor Adams and thinks about sort of being a leader of the Republican opposition in the city, but with a mayor who certainly leans moderate and conservative in a number of ways. We get into a lot on how the city and the federal government are handling this influx of tens of thousands of asylum seekers to the city, uh, challenges with increasing housing affordability and production in the city, and a variety of other things. My conversation with New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli in just a second. Quickly, if you've missed any recent episodes of the show, you can find them all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts. Recent guests have included New York City Public Advocate Jamani Williams, the co-chairs of the New York City Council Progressive Caucus, Council Member Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler. I also spoke recently with New York City Council Member Rafael Salamanco, who chairs the council's very important land use committee. So we talked a lot about housing with Council Member Salamanca. And then speaking of housing, most recently on the show, I had a really good conversation with the two new leaders of NYCHA, the New York City Public Housing Authority, uh, about their vision, their roles, uh, some major programs that are being implemented at NYCHA, a really good conversation there. So that's that's the smattering of recent episodes of the show. You can find any or all of those after this one with Council Member Borelli. And then, like I said, stay tuned for part two with uh, Councilmember Borelli in the coming days or weeks here. He is a Staten Island Republican representing the 51st Council District on the South Shore. He was elected in a special election in the end of 2015, has been reelected in 2017 and 2021, now running again for a final two-year term because things got wonky with the census and redistricting, so the entire city council was redrawn. And now there are these elections in the new districts happening this year. Councilmember Borelli is a former state assembly member. 
He was an early endorser of Donald Trump in the 2016 presidential campaign. He was a driving force behind Lee Zeldin's strong performance in the 2022 New York governor's race. And he's also a secessionist. He believes in Staten Island becoming its own city. And that's something that he mentions in this conversation, but we'll have to get into more in part two uh, as I keep previewing if we have time for that. Here's my conversation with Joe Borelli. All right. City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli, thanks for joining me. How are you? Ben, in my long and storied career, I've always enjoyed talking to you, even when uh, you might have thought I was on the wrong side of an issue. It's always been a real pleasure. Appreciate you coming back to the show here. So um, a lot of stuff we want to get into in our time together. Let's start just really big picture. Give give us the broad Borelli assessment in New York politics, especially New York City, though. Where are we right now? We are, you know, a year and a half into the Adams administration. You're coming off these recent Republican election gains and where you didn't have gains, you had some strong showings in 2022 in New York. Um, Conservatives are having a little bit of a moment here, right? And, you know, there's still something of a backlash to the de Blasio years and the expansion of progressive governance in New York. There's obviously backlash to all sorts of challenges of the pandemic, which, you know, some are blame, you know, people can blame on Democrats. Some are just people really frustrated, but all sorts of things going on that have people worked up, angry at those in power, which in New York are mostly Democrats, uh, some based on bad governance, some based on other things. Um, but you have a moderate mayor, you have some pickups for Republicans in the city council, uh, conservative Democrats are beating progressive Democrats in a bunch of primaries. Lee Zeldin obviously had his strong showing in 2022, didn't win, but but strong showing. Where are we right now in New York politics? What kind of sort of moment are we in here? Well, I think as evidenced by the Zeldin uh, near win, uh, we are certainly at the point where the pendulum has begun to swing back a little bit. Uh, you know, if anything, the, the high water mark might not have been the pandemic, but it might have been when the uh, IDC finally collapsed uh, and the Democrats took over uh, both the, the houses of the legislature and the governor's mansion, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably the, the moment in time where we can say that was the peak of Democratic power in the state. And, and hopefully there is a pendulum push backwards. Now, you, you said the mayors are moderate, and I, and I don't necessarily disagree with that. And I think the irony there is that uh, absent the migrant crisis, he would be a moderate mayor that would be making inroads uh, towards reelection. But I unfortunately think the migrant crisis has you know, really, really uh, put a thorn uh, in the side, and it has sucked all the oxygen out of the room. It certainly sucked all the money out of the room. And I don't think there's going to be any possibility for relief until after the election in 2024. Mm -hmm. And when you say possibility for relief, you mean federal government help for the city with the asylum seeker crisis? Yeah, both both federal government help with dealing with the actual physical migrants. You know, where where are we going to put them? Who's going to be responsible? And for blowing a hole in our budget. I mean, the, the, the new estimate is, is sort of insane. I mean, even this, this new, you know, no bid contract that people are, are having concerns about right now, forget the no bid part of it. Let's just talk about the, the fact it's, it's, it's a bigger budget, it's 450 million or something like that. That's double the Department of Buildings budget. I mean, and you look at the city council and I'm on BNT and I'm involved in these talks. I mean, we fight about, you know, a million dollars here. there. And here you have 
a no bid contract that's larger than double a, a uniformed you know agency, a, a, a first line agency. Mm-hmm. And there's almost no deliberation whatsoever. It's like we just can't. And I, I understand the state's going to pay for it essentially, but um, or 300 million of it. But like th- these are huge, massive sums of money that are taking away the mayor's ability to do anything from, you know, property tax relief, which I would like. And we were certainly having that conversation a year ago uh, or even to progressive ca- uh, causes of, hey, let's you know, what are the big picture items in the budget that the mayor wants to do that might mm-hmm. cost a lot? We just we just don't have those. And despite everyone trying to dance around it, it is because of the migrant problem mm-hmm. is is the mayor in your view being is is his sort of standing being hurt among moderates and conservatives in, in your view because of how he's handling this or is he sort of still on very solid ground with with those groups i mean eric adams obviously is about as good as republicans can hope for in a mayor uh at this stage of, of city politics well but i mean unless you get sort of another bloomberg figure who's going to come in and run as a republican and be a little bit more conservative in in a number of ways I mean, you know, the uh, the way city politics has been going, you know, Eric Adams is probably about as good as you're going to do, right? Well, the, the, the issue is that to govern as a moderate, um, you need to do things that appeal to both sides uh, and you need to avoid things uh, that, that really drive a wedge between the base uh, of either party and where you happen to stand. Uh, and I'll give you an example. You know, like if, if the mayor was a, a moderate or right-leaning on public safety – and he happened to do some environmental green stuff. You know, you wouldn't see a big abandonment of moderate Republicans from his side. You just wouldn't. I mean, that's that's sort of how you govern. Add the migrant crisis, where it is such a visceral issue now in every one of our neighborhoods all over the city, where you are either one of the people who believe the mayor's not doing enough, and you want, you know, sort of the, the Brad Lander model or the Legal Aid of New York, uh, Legal Aid Society model, where. You know, nothing's good enough and we have to keep suing until everything is paid for. Or you're the, you know, Whitestone Queens, we don't want you at Creedmoor um, model of citizen where anything we do for the migrants is, you know, a, a game changer for you. And that's why I think it, it is a, a politically precarious situation right now, because it's such a divisive issue with no with really no middle ground. What's what should the mayor be doing differently? So he's obviously called for more state and federal help. Some Financial help, as you noted, is coming from the state, but the state and the governor have been very slow to sort of help in terms of managing the people. There's been some movement of folks arriving to some places outside the city, but of course, that's also very controversial. Um, the federal help is is not coming. You know, it's limited basis financially. There's n- there's a lot of uh, sort of radio silence from from the federal government. The mayor's been very critical of the Biden administration, obviously, and that's that's cost him somewhat politically. Um, but what should what should the city what should the mayor be d- doing differently on this? Well, look, look I, with my hat as a New York elected official, you know, I I don't want New York taxpayers to pay for the. Uh, a crisis uh, directly out of the city's general fund. No, I don't. On the flip side, yeah, I want the federal government to pay for it and the state government to pay for it. But at some point, without the the the, the source of the problem being stopped, now essentially, if we get paid for this and we get reimbursed, we're essentially just uh, the same as any other nonprofit providing a service for uh, a sum of money. And my fear is that more people will come here, more people will be reliant on the city of New York to, to shelter and house them and, and take care of their medical needs, et cetera. 
And if the federal government starts paying that and we sort of consent to that, I don't see the problem ever going away. Whereas mm-hmm. just this city and perhaps a few others might just be the the, uh, the the arm of the federal government who now provides this type of service that really the Constitution may not even provide the federal government the ability to do. Right. So, I mean, that's part of the question is this right to seek asylum and and the question around who gets to seek asylum and how that process is working at the border. I mean, this gets into some really thorny federal practices and policies. Yeah, look, 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 we, we had asylum seekers under President Trump. I think there were 50, 60, 70,000 people granted uh, asylee status in the U.S. during the Trump administration. So, I mean, there is a model of how it was done differently, mm-hmm. where people who legitimately would qualify for asylum or who reasonably believed uh, that uh, they would be entitled to asylum status applied. I mean, I, I just I just don't think there's much controversy right now in saying that immigration was better under President Trump and previously Obama and previously Bush than it is right now under President Biden. I just don't, I mean, there's no comparison. What's the, you know, I'm not an expert enough on what's happening at the border to know the difference, but what's your sense of what the difference is? I mean, it's just more, more people who say I'm here seeking asylum or being let in without, without more pushback. I I think, I think it's on the, it's the stick and carrot, right? So you have cities like New York saying, if you get here, whether you're bused by the federal government or flown by the federal government or bused by Greg Abbott or you find your own way, if you get here, we will pay for everything. That, that, that is an obvious uh, – That was pretty clear under Bill de Blasio. But, but yes, yes. But, but we also had uh, Trump uh, at the border, right? We also had a different, a different animal. We had a remain in Mexico policy. Uh, we, you know, we had these things, right? We, we, and we sort of had a public footing that we were not going to simply permit people to walk in our country – uninhibited, which is what we have now. Don't you think the vast, vast majority of these folks coming are truly leaving awful conditions and seeking asylum in in the United States? And many of them want to go to New York, maybe because they know that lots of services will be paid for under the city's policies, but also because New York is obviously the city of immigrants and there are you name the community, there's a community here of people from you name the country. Yeah, I mean, I think the clear difference is that we're, we're not necessarily paying for every service of all those other immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I, of course, I would I would concede that most of these people are here with with good purposes and they want to do the right thing and they want to work. Um, but that said, we, we just can't have an open border. It's just it's just not sustainable. We can't and have a welfare work- state. Yeah. Is the work authorization right now for those that are already here the key piece or is it more you want federal agents to come in and and remove people? I, I think the first step has to be to to stop the spigot uh, and whether that means, uh, you know, reinstating remain in Mexico, um, uh, you know, that might be the most important aspect. But if we reinstate remain in Mexico, you also have to have some enforcement on the border. Mm hmm. And what do you think about this notion that a lot of people are stressing that, you know, New York City is a city of immigrants, that everyone should be welcome here? Of course, the federal government should be sending more money and work authorization should be sped up and there should be more done to clear backlogs of asylum applications and all of that stuff. But that there needs to be a real sense that, you know, different waves of immigrants come in different, you know, different uh, eras. And the rules might be different in different ways, but, you know, the people coming through Ellis Island, you know, 
they, but they every weren't. everything you mentioned, everything you mentioned um, is is subject to our laws, which are subject to a political process. Yeah. Here we have the opposite, where we're ignoring our laws and ignoring the political process and just having sort of a scenario that we have to shoot from the hip uh, and try to solve. So, you know, I, I don't think I, I don't think we could we could make many decisions until sort of there is sort of this this freeze at the border from more people coming in. Then I think we could have a conversation about uh, in a political process. How do we you know, legalize people that that we want to keep here? How do we vet people who we may not want to? How do we get people uh, you know, moving on a legal track? Mm-hmm. You can't do any of that uh, until you can effectively, I think, stop uh, the, the massive influx. All right, we could keep going on this for a long time. Let's get let's get into some other stuff here. Um, so, in terms of your relationship with Mayor Adams, say a little bit about your view of him and his responsiveness to the uh, to to you as base. You know, the Republican leader in the city council, uh, a city council member, obviously of long standing in the council, uh, leader of the GOP caucus, leader of. Uh, the common sense caucus that includes some conservative Democrats, as I mentioned, how is, how are you viewing your relationship with him and uh, sort of how he's running city government from your purview? It's hot and cold, obviously. Um, We disagree on a lot. Uh, There are of course, some things that myself uh, and the Republican caucus and the common sense caucus agree on. And, you know, a lot of those things we were actually working towards. I mean, property tax reform is probably the most significant thing uh, we were collaborating on before sort of, again, going back to the migrants, before the migrants sort of sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Um, I respect the fact that a lot of his senior advisors will take my, uh, not just call, but will listen to what I have to say on different issues. As you mentioned, I am the longest serving council member, so I have been around the block a few times. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe maybe my advice is good. Uh, maybe sometimes it's not, but I respect the fact that they uh, earnestly listen to what I have to say and oftentimes do the opposite. But at least uh, we have a, an open line of communication. What's something where Mayor Adams seems to have taken your advice or you, you think that your advice works its way into his ear in a way that showed some results? Property tax rebate during the budget last year, probably number one. You know, it was the first time since the Bloomberg era um, any taxpayers got any money back. And I mean, I wish it was more. But it was the first time the city government acknowledged sort of this discrepancy between property owners and said, OK, let's give a few hundred bucks back uh, to, to the property owners. There's obviously this huge uh, crisis that the Adams administration is dealing with that we've been talking about a bunch here on the arrival of tens of thousands of asylum seekers in the city. They've had to drastically expand the shelter system. They're doing all sorts of new contracting, hotels. Uh, tents, emergency centers, all of all of this stuff dealing with this crisis. Now, every mayor gets at least one big crisis. Eric Adams obviously has gotten um, at least one here already in his tenure, and it is a, a long ongoing one. Um, that being said, a lot of city government is also doing other things. As you point out, this has sucked a lot of the oxygen out of the room, but and, and taken up lots of resources and time and such, but also there are lots of parts of city government that are doing other things. There's the $107 billion budget that you all passed uh, that has a lot of other things besides a couple billion dollars for uh, services related to the migrants. So broadly speaking, 
there's a lot of criticism of how the Adams administration is is governing the city. He promised to be sort of more of a Bloomberg-esque technocrat, lots of efficiency, effectiveness, good management. Meanwhile, all sorts of services are are below par against a variety of metrics, whether it's getting food stamps out the door or closing, you know, certain housing deals. And and a lot of that seems to go back to all these city government vacancies that can't be filled or haven't been filled uh, and questions around policies there. But whether it's personnel policies or anything else, what do you what's your assessment of sort of how city government is being run under this mayor? And is he struggling to manage the government? Are there ways in which you see some of the distractions that a lot of people point to, some of the questions about how he spends his time and some of the ways he's uh, struggled to develop allies in the council, in the state legislature, et cetera? What's your assessment more broadly of of how the mayor is governing the city? Uh, let, let me start here. I, I don't care what the mayor does in his, in his private time. Uh, I'm not one of those people who gets uh, who gets uh, offended that he goes out nights and, and, and uh, you know, gallivants to use a term my mother would have used. Um, it's when he makes decisions that are, I think, contrary to the public interest that, that I have more of a problem with him, right? Um, and I think one of the things he's struggling with, and it's the same thing that Bill de Blasio is struggling with, it's the same thing that Kathy Hochul is struggling with, is how do we build uh, housing or even renovate some housing? I mean, I, I think that the issue that highlights the housing crisis more than any other is the the retrofitting and rehab of rent stabilized units. I mean, there is there is no other issue where you sort of have every reasonable voice in the room saying, okay, yes, we need these 40,000 units back online. Yes, there is a cost. How much cost can the landlord now adjust the rent to pay for it, right? Most reasonable people will will concede those three facts. And then, you know, there has to be a political decision of, of what that final number ends up being. Is it a 5% raise? Is it a 10% raise? Whatever the, whatever the number is. Yet we're just paralyzed, uh, especially in the state legislature. We're just paralyzed by pandering to this radical left who, who just doesn't believe in, in, in essentially in the basic tenets of, of the economy. It's just it's bizarre. It's actually a bizarre situation where, um, you know, being a landlord is, is, is one step above, uh, you know, being a murderer in, in the concentric rings of hell. And we're not going to give uh, any benefit to them, even though we need the same people to renovate these units. I, I just think this is um, a, a standoff that is genuinely hurting people. And it's one of those issues that you just have to eliminate um, the extremes uh, and and come up with a, a solution. And I, I don't know why this mayor, this governor, they just can't seem to come to the table and negotiate. It, it, it has been a bit surprising to me that there wasn't more of a look from the governor, from the mayor, from some others at this, this issue around rent stabilized apartments. There seem to be some thousands, tens of thousands that are offline. I don't know that we have a full accounting on that. Um, but some real, you know, questions there. There are obviously people on the left who say that, uh, you know, landlords are warehousing some of those units. They refuse to do some upgrades on them. Their finances are, you know, good enough to invest some money, even if the rents won't wind up covering it because they have the broader portfolio or whatever the different arguments might be. But I have been surprised that there wasn't more attention on that issue because it does seem that there's a significant number of rent stabilized apartments that are offline. And, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you other issue as well. I mean, it's the the problem of uh, bringing new developments uh, to to market. Well, I was going to. That's the, the next ground. part I was going to ask about. Yeah, 
And I'll just give you a little case study of, of one city planning application in my district. So uh, this developer bought some property years ago. Um, you know, they originally wanted to do a, a small apartment complex that is out of character with the zoning. So myself, the community board, you know, we, we did the whole familiar, let's, let's, you know, let's get angry and let's downsize the project. The developer agreed to downsize the project. Now it's about 100 units, let's say, right? There's 100 units of housing in a housing crisis. And we are now on year four and a half, um, just trying to get this through the city planning process. And again, this is after, this is four years after we've had sort of the scope and density argument, right? And now it, it is literally bureaucratic red tape about how deep, uh, sewers have to be, uh, how, when, when the city has to take possession to a map street, what that process has to look like. Uh, does the developer have to build to the city standard that is just not, it's not financially feasible, right? If a developer had to dig these massive sewers and put them, you know, 20 feet underground, the, the margin isn't there to actually build the project. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a complex thing and, and, and just negating the fact that essentially time is money when you're a developer and, and you have a bridge loan uh, and you're trying to finance a project. Yeah, I'll point to people again to the uh, fairly recent Citizens Budget Commission study on all of this. And there's there's so many things that the CBC pointed to in terms of problems in the various processes. Uh, and there's been other studies as well. Uh, and reports on just all the challenges that get baked into moving projects along. Um, ben, it, it, it can't take but, six months to get a range yeah. hood in a restaurant kitchen <laughs> reinspected. I mean, this is this is a city that that doesn't operate in reality. And then people wonder why, um, you know, there's people who skirt the rules because it's actually easier to skirt the rules than try to follow them at times. So, I mean, I guess this gets to a larger thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is just. We do uh, we do seem to have a crisis of governance in New York now. Democrats are pretty much in charge or are in charge in the city and state, at least uh, both houses, of the legislature, governor's office, mayor's office, obviously most of the city council by a wide margin. Um, at the same time, there's been lots of challenges with governance over many years. Republicans don't seem to be able to convince enough voters to give you guys back more power. Um but in the broader sense of sort of the, the the crisis of governance, what is at the root of this? Is it that is it this this problem where we elect people based on politics, but they're not necessarily the best at actually running the government? Is it way too many bureaucratic rules, civil service, all sorts of things that gum up the works and slow things down? What, what's really at the root here? Or is it a combination of a bunch of factors? Uh, I, I think after my 10 years, I would have to say it's, it's, it's a combination, right? I mean, so you, you look at our city council, you know, and this is not, this is not meant to be insulting. It, it, it actually isn't. You know, th- there are dumb people in our council. There are dumb people in the Baltimore city council and the Washington city council and every city council from here to, to Spokane. Um, so that in and of itself isn't the issue. Um, I, I think it has more to do with this this giant bureaucracy that is New York City. I mean, we are we are a city that is in population and budget the size of Switzerland, right? And I, I always use this analogy: like we have almost taken power away from elected officials uh, and put it in in the sort of person of one mayor 
And then as just as a default of, of, the, of the lack of central authority, we have allowed commissioners and deputy commissioners to each just become these, these bureaucratic czars of their own little fiefdoms. And no one is looking for the big picture of, okay, well, how many units of housing did we actually do? And you see this with, with you know, my friend uh, Mark Levine. And we disagree on a lot, but you know, Mark's not wrong on this. He's pointing out how many approvals for, for uh, housing developments are approved. Manhattan gets months of zero approvals. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't go because, you know, we have a dopey city council member, you know, trying to ban toothpicks or something. That's not getting built because we have a bureaucratic system that's simply too large to be functional. But, but actually, is it, it's, isn't it that plus the politics of you name the issue seem to just grind to a halt for the status quo? And this is where, you know, you have uh, almost a convergence across the political spectrum of of a sense of conservatism, right, of a status quo, because you have mostly the people that have the most power, are the people that are pretty happy with the way things are in a lot of cases, right? It's like in Manhattan, part of the reason that there's not more housing being built is because the people who live there and own a lot of the housing are like, eh, you know what, we're kind of overgrown here. Let's build the housing over on Staten Island. And people on Staten Island are like, actually, we want this to be more of a suburban community. Let's build the housing in Manhattan. No, I, th- I think I think you're actually wrong because the person in charge is the mayor and the person in charge is actually saying we need to build housing. The disconnect is between the mayor saying, or the governor in this case too, we need to build you know 500,000 units of housing by 2030 and having the big chart with, with how many housing units are getting built. And then the disconnect between there and the bean counter at the Department of Buildings or whoever, or the City Planning Commission, who has to approve that in a timely fashion to make it to make it. But you're leaving out the you're leaving out the local the local elected officials and where the mayor and the governor's plans. How, no, no, I think you're wrong. How many controversial city planning issues actually came to the city council? In this council, two, two. Most of this stuff is done pro forma and very simply. Uh, often well, but, times, but as a, you know, some of the projects don't get to the city council because the council member, based on whatever local opposition they've heard, has the developer pull the application. So or says, or says, here's the zoning code. Uh, here's what you're allowed to build without my intervention. Right. I, I can't fault people for saying, OK, what can I legally build tomorrow? Right. And then saying, well, I want to see if I can change the rules to get this project for whatever reason. Sure. Okay. My, my point is the, the disconnect between executives saying we have to do X and the government that's supposed to execute them is larger in New York than anywhere else. It's anywhere else. And even there's a disconnect between city council members uh, and the sort of broader issues at large. How many times does the city council actually weigh the massive issues of New York? Very infrequently, right? We're, we're banning ice cream trucks now or something oh. like that, right? I mean, it, 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 it just it, passed it, a $107 billion budget that had a lot of, you know, meaty stuff in it, right? <laughs> outside of the budget. I mean, outside of the yeah, budget. Yeah. You mean um, policy? Outside of the budget, well, regular I, policy. Listen, I mean, that's but that's where I come back to. The, where's the city council, you know, effort on housing? Where's the, you know, the as you point out, the Manhattan Borough president came into office and basically said, Mark Levine came came to his office and said to his employees, we're going to put out a big housing plan. And they put out a very detailed big housing plan. Folks well, you, you, you cut me off before I gave oh, the crescendo. Oh, oh, you know, I'm you, so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't believe in just Staten Island secession. I believe more broadly in a devolved government. 
where uh, instead of wrapping all of the county powers uh, and the city powers into one mayor, we should look towards devolving our power now that we're much bigger than we were a few years ago, you know, a few decades ago, and think about restoring power to the borough presidents to make them have more on the ground decisions to even give more power to the community boards. Uh, again, the other example I use, I used Switzerland earlier. I'll use Savannah, Georgia, right? In Savannah, if you lived in Savannah, you'd have your council member in your district. You'd have your council member at large, two of them. You'd have your mayor who you elect and you'd have your Chatham County legislator. Now, if you don't like the stop sign, right, all of those people are much closer to solving the stop sign problem at the end of your corner than your city council member in New York is. I don't have any say over these things that actually affect the lives of my constituents. But I, I mean, essentially, we, we don't but have the a city say council anymore. defers to you on a deve any development project in your district, right? That needs city council approval. Sure. But 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 even those are, are, are only applications of people trying to build more than they can per the zoning code mm -hmm. or trying to exceed um, certain size requirements or, or density uh, that the zoning code provides. Mm -hmm. The members of your Republican conference in the city council, six members, plus the two members that make up the common sense caucus, um, mostly are not supportive of lots of new development in their districts, correct? I would say most council Housing members are not, most council members are not. No, but, I, but yes, I understand that. And I asked the, you know, progressive co-chairs of the city council's progressive caucus about this, too. So I, like I said, this this clearly extends across a lot of ideological divides. But, but look and, and, and look at the incentive. Right. I mean, just just again, going back to the, to the how, how the government of New York is formed. Right. So we give the city council the power to essentially deny some big developments, um, but we don't have them get any incentive. Uh, compare that to like, you know, any township in New Jersey, right? Any, if a township in New Jersey, uh, the best example is probably Homedale, New Jersey, right? Homedale, New Jersey, I have some in-laws there, so I'm familiar with. They took over Bell Labs, this big laboratory property, and they sold it to a developer because they realized that the only way to, for them to be able to pay for their government and to give raises uh, and to hire more people and build a new school, all that lovely stuff, they would have to get some economic growth. The council, we have the power to say yes or no, but it doesn't mean we have the the meat and potato decision down the road on how to spend that that money. You follow what I'm saying, Ben? I mean, we, yes, we are so but, disconnected between the requirement of government to grow over time and the incentive of developing property. Yes, but a we, 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 can, we can say no and there's no consequence in the council, essentially. Political consequences. Well, that's I mean. but that's polit right. That that's right. That's exactly right. And that's why you get a lot of no across the a lot. If, if you say no in Homedale, New Jersey, the mayor probably can't pay the fire department the following year or something like that, right? Th that's what I mean. From the city's just too big and there's too much of a disconnect well, between the overarching issue and some of the elected leaders. Two things, though. One, this conversation, like lots of others, and I pointed this out to uh, people on this show of many political stripes, is that. This conversation often shifts to talking about housing as a bad thing, right? It's like, we're going to allow more housing. Well, 
what for that bad thing, what's the good stuff we get? And it's like, wait a second, isn't in a growing city with an affordability crisis, the housing is partly the really good thing? I mean, no. And look at the example I gave you. I gave you 100 units, you know, in in basically. Well, that sounds like the mayor needs to manage the city government better. And that's not just Eric Adams. Obviously, you talked about how this has been going on for years. I mean, a lot of this does seem to come back to. But it is the entrenched, it is the entrenched bureaucracy that just grinds uh, at uh, nearly a halt. Yeah. And was it better it just, under Bloomberg? Like, was Bloomberg actually a disruptor of that entrenched bureaucracy? I mean, I, I was only really around the last couple of years of Bloomberg. I, I, I think, to be honest, I think the bureaucracy only grows and slows over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think there's probably some exponential uh, algorithm you could probably come up with to, to demonstrate that. But I, I think, yes, I, I'm not being nostalgic. I just think it was easier to move projects along uh, because we, we were less technocratic. Less I mean, bureaucratic I, I, on everything. Yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. Again, a lot of this, I think, comes back to how the, the city government is being managed. And when I say the mayor being distracted, I'm not even talking about. Ben, have you ever seen the 24 pages to plant a tree? The, the guy. No, no, absolutely. The absolutely. I understand. And I said, you know, especially on housing and, and the city's Euler process, you know, the Citizens Budget Commission study pointed out how many uh, many thousands of dollars in time gets added to every project. And it, it, a lot of it is is absurd and needs. But again, needs elected officials will say, you know what, we got to look at this. We got to change these laws. We got to change these rules so that things speed up. Meanwhile, when some people even well, recognize I am the that. One, I am the one on your show talking about the plan for that. I, I said we should devolve yeah, government. Devolve, yeah. We should give county county government authority again in the form of the borough presidents. We should have uh, different levels. We should have different levels of government responsible for different things uh, and elected officials who are actually decision makers on issues be closer to the public that elects them. So yeah. I, I'm the one who gave you the solution. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I only have a couple more minutes with you. We have to say right now we're going to do a part two of this because we're not getting into all these city council elections that I said we're going to get good. into. We got to do part two that just focuses on the general elections for city council because you got some Republican holds that you want to keep those seats. And then you got some potential flips and pickups. The new city council district in Brooklyn that I mentioned in the introduction is up for grabs. There's a lot of stuff going on with these elections, so we're going to do. Well, I would love two. to. You, you know, with me, you get an unmeasured response every time. So I hope the audience is is uh, especially when you're a term limited councilman. It's great because you feel like you could just share your thoughts. Uh, hey, if, when you have that perspective, that's that's excellent because uh, even even without that, some people would be hedging and and a little too careful. It's good to have people actually speak speak their minds here. Uh, so last last couple quick questions. Um, the the sort of Republican conservative approach to something like the city budget, just give people a little insight. You've got eight members of this common sense caucus. There's a couple other council members that are sort of moderate conservative Democrats that, you know, are, are close to that outlook to uh, in a variety of ways. But seven out of those eight common sense caucus members voted for the budget and. Uh, were there ways that you were able to influence this budget? Explain that to me, because I was I was surprised that Councilmember Kagan was the only one of the eight Common Sense Caucus members who voted against the budget. Give, give us a little insight in our last couple of minutes here, and then we're going to talk about a bunch of other stuff when I can schedule you again soon. Well, look, but, we we, we, yeah. we do have influence. Right? I mean, the Common Sense Caucus has you know eight votes that are that are perhaps more united normally. Uh, than even the progressive caucus. So that's a block of people that that does provide a significant shift uh, in the vote count in either direction. 
And you saw um, almost every progressive voting against the budget. So, so yes, we were influential in the budget, as we were in the previous budget when we got the property tax rebate. This year, again, all the oxygen and money sucked up by the migrants, no money to do anything else. Um, you know, that, that said um, – yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, go, go ahead. On. No, I just I take issue with that framing because it's a hundred seven billion dollar budget. But go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I mean, big picture for for a conservative view of city budget. Right. I mean, this is not we have to use gap accounting, which most people don't want to talk about. So the revenue that comes in has to be equal to the expenses that go out. Um, limiting that growth to the inflation number uh, is probably an, an important thing that a more conservative uh, mayor and council would be focused on. Um, which, which we're not. I mean, we're, we, this year we probably increased by, what, 5 or 6%, I would have to imagine. A, a big part of it, too, is sort of the need to drown out some of the, the, the organized agitator groups. And, um, and I say that nicely. I mean, you know, obviously we, we have to be respectful of the public, but we, we can't be as influenced as we are by groups who just oftentimes don't come with facts. Now, I'm going to commit a major faux pas right here, I'm going to like go it. after I'm going to go after New Yorkers with parks. I mean, nobody goes after New Yorkers for parks, right? They are one of those organizations that is just like, you know, they're, they're up there in the in, everybody in the, loves in the, parks, so right. everybody Every, loves the advocacy group for parks. All right, Faux and, and they're wonder and they're wonderful people. Uh-huh. But like, we're listening to this stuff about about you know one percent for parks, and like no one takes the time to even read their report to see it. it's nonsense. Like if New York took out its school district, like every one of the other cities they compared it to, like we would be at 1% for, for parks. Like we wouldn't be there. If you, if you look at some of the other cities they compared to, some of them split their, um, split their uh, services between a county and a city, like, like you know, Cook County and Chicago. Like it, you, they, they compare apples to potatoes and they expect one algorithm to just, just, to just solve it. And the most basic one is education. You just take the city's education out of our budget like almost every city on earth does. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we're about 1%. But yet this becomes a driving factor of the budget conversation. And, and they didn't get the 1%. Well, I mean, in my mind, they did. Um, but it becomes right. the driving factor of so much of the budget process. So some of, some of your perspective as we close out here, I know you got to go, but some of your perspective here is like, you know what? We've got a mayor who's, you know, somewhat focused on restraining the growth and pushing back against all the calls for more spending, more spending, more spending. We've sort of been able to work with some of the more moderate forces in the council. The progressive wing is not getting a lot of what they want. So this is good enough and we're going to support it. No, I mean, I, I would go further and say, look at the, the state comptroller, Tom DiNapoli. Uh, is a Democrat who, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. We were actually floor mates uh, in the university club when, when I was in Albany as a state legislator. Um, but I mean, the, the 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 decline that he is predicting in revenues is alarming. I mean, this this is this is the kind of overarching issue that the city council should be delving into full force and saying, you know, why aren't we having this conversation, uh, you know, in our finance committee or in our budget hearings? Instead of just worrying about how many, you know, how much, how many millions is going to uh, make the road New York. Mm-hmm. All right. That's somewhere to pick back up when we when we chat for part two here. Everybody stay tuned for part two with New York City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli. Uh, we're going to pick back up with a little bit more budget discussion and then we'll get into a couple other things. Uh, city issues. We didn't even talk about a potential federal takeover of Rikers and congestion pricing. And we got to I don't know what. 
we got it. We got it. We need, uh, we need at least another hour. So uh, we got to talk about a lot of things, but anyway, we'll get into that. And then we got to talk about the five or six most uh, contended races for the general election, the city council here, where you're trying to hold Republican seats and pick up some others. So uh, Joe Borelli, thanks for joining me and let's talk more soon until then. Thank you. All right. Thanks. (laughs) 